0: And uh, we're going to hear from God's Word as Michael comes and uh, reads for us from Matthew chapter 11. Uh, But as he comes up, uh, let me lead us in prayer and ask God to speak to us. Let's pray. Our gracious God, your Word is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. Today, when we hear your voice, deliver us from hardness of heart. Help us to put away everything that keeps us from persevering in your way, for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ.
1: Amen. Okay, we're going to be covering Matthew chapter 11, verses 16 through to 24. I'll just give you a little bit of time to um, flick through your Bible or your electronic device before we get started. Matthew chapter 11, verse 16. To what can I compare this generation? They are like children, sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He is a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Here is a glutton and a drunkard a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is proved right by her deeds. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of the miracles had been performed, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more, more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you.
0: Thanks, Michael. Please keep your Bibles open to that passage. And uh, we join me in prayer again as we uh, come to reflect on this part of God's Word. Our Father, we, uh, we thank you for your Word and we do ask that you would help us this morning to hear what you have to say to us and to take it to heart. We pray that we would have ears, not only have ears, but have ears that hear and hearts that respond to you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know about you, but um, I feel like we're, we're kind of living under a, a bit of a cloud at the moment. Or maybe we're, we're, we're sort of the cloud's starting to lift and we're, we're sort of searching for the cloud to lift. But it's, it's what I call a COVID cloud. And even just mentioning that word, kind of you feel the, a little bit of the oppressiveness of, of the cloud. but uh, it takes different forms for different people. For some, it's a, a cloud of confusion, for others, of fear. Uh, maybe just frustration or fatigue or fed upness i don 't know if that's a word, but it's a, it should be then maybe for you as I say maybe the clouds are actually starting to lift and, and I know that we've got we've got more people you know coming back to church each week, which is is really great uh, maybe the there's a bit of blue sky kind of shining through, but in lots of, uh, in lots of ways, it just feels like well life isn't the way that it used to be. Life isn't the way it was before. There's a bit of a cloud hanging over. I I want it to be the way it was before. And maybe it will get back there eventually, or or maybe it won't. It feels like we're living under a bit of a cloud. Now, imagine if tomorrow morning, the, the news, the media, the social media, were just awash with a story announcing that COVID had ended, that soon there would be no more COVID, that life would return to normal in the pre-COVID days, we could do all the things that we're used to, the way we used to do them, and the, the confusion, the fear, the frustration, the, the fed-upness that has infiltrated so much of life would soon be gone. Imagine the announcement, the kingdom of post-COVID is near. <laughs> now, I don't mean to tor- torment you with, uh, with such a wishful idea, But I wonder if if contemplating that kind of helps us to to grasp something of the the magnitude of the far greater announcement that came when John the Baptist came preaching in in chapter 3, verse 2, repent, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Or when Jesus came preaching in 4, verse 17, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Or when in nine verse thirty five Jesus we read Jesus went through all the towns and villages teaching in their synagogues proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. Or when Jesus extended his ministry, sending out his apostles, and and uh, in verse ten verse seven we read they had to proclaim this message: the kingdom of heaven has come near. See, Jesus came into this world and brought an astounding, colossal announcement of such immense magnitude, immense importance. He said, a new kingdom, a new age, the reign of God himself has come near. It's entering the world. The cloud is lifting. It's time to respond. And a response of some sort is, well is, in, is inevitable I mean, news of that of that magnitude evokes an inevitable response and it tends to be polarizing people either grab hold of it with both hands as the best thing since sliced bread or they reject it they ignore it and write it off as well nonsense in today's passage we see the, uh, the, the this latter response to jesus and the colossal announcement that he brought we we see this response in Jesus assessment of, of his contemporaries of his culture of those around him those those he calls this generation in verse 16 and the assessment that we read in this passage is not very favorable this is not a very cheery passage uh, I'm not sure what I was thinking when I when I was uh, working out the preaching breakup and I uh, and I, I just, you know, went with this passage. I mean, why didn't I include the next bit as well with the, with the gentle and lowly Jesus and the invitation to come to him and, and, and to rest in him and with his easy yoke and his light burden? I mean, I could have just kind of included that passage and focused more on that and, and less on this unfavorable assessment of this generation. I and mean, why did I give myself this passage and bend the next passage? <laughs> well, brothers and sisters, despite my whinging, um, I'm glad to be preaching this passage this morning, just this passage, and I'm glad that we're we're going slow to allow God's word to to speak, to address us. We would be fools to only listen to the to the cheery bits of God's word, or the bits that we like, or the bits that we agree with. So I say, let's not be fools. But what is Jesus' assessment of of these people to whom John came? proclaiming the kingdom of heaven, to whom Jesus came proclaiming the kingdom of heaven, amongst whom Jesus healed the sick and raised the dead and, and and drove out demons. What's Jesus' assessment? Well, verse 16, he says, to what can I compare this generation? He's analysing his generation. Now, I think um, generational analysis is something that, um, that, you know, gets a bit of attention from time to time. You know, people generalise about the characteristics of each generation. You know, what do we got, what are they, the, the, the builders, the baby boomers, the Gen X, Gen Y, um, millennials, or I generation, or the, the, the names kind of get tossed around differently. And, and sometimes talking of generations, is just a way of sledging someone, you know, oh, you're such a boomer. I've, I've had that said to me, which I want to say, I'm not a boomer actually, that was my parents were boomers. Anyway, um, or, or you millennials, you're all the same. I'll just leave that one. Um, the, the, and look, there can be some value in, in kind of generalising how people of a generation respond to, to life and different things. And, well, likewise, Jesus here generalises the, the generation around him. He says, well, he says they're like obstinate, obstinate, fickle, impossible to please children. Verse 16 continues, to what, to what can I compare this generation? It says, they are like children sitting in the marketplaces, calling out to others, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. Saying when we played a happy tune, you didn't dance. And when we played a sad one, you refused to mourn. I don't know if parents have ever uh, encountered this sort of obstinate, contrary behaviour from their children, I'm Sure. That's is that ever happened? I don't know. Um, Jesus then explains this this comparison and, and how that applies to, to the situation. And he says, verse eighteen: For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, now Jesus isn't saying that John never ate or drank. Drank that would be. Um, know, miraculous. But he's saying John came, his eating and his drinking was was very limited. Uh, We know from 3 verse 4 that his food was locusts and wild honey. That's a very minimal kind of diet. Uh, From Luke chapter 1 verse 15, it says that he he wasn't to drink wine or other fermented drink. And in uh, chapter 9 verse uh, 14 of, of Matthew, we read that John's disciples often fasted. Uh, which was in contrast to Jesus' disciples. So John came neither eating or drinking, and yet people didn't say, hey, John, John, you're such a godly man. Uh, you speak the truth from God. No, they wrote him off as demon-possessed. Uh, on the other hand, Jesus came, and Jesus refers to himself here as the Son of Man, which was uh, was Jesus' title for himself. It's a little bit like saying, yours truly, um, but it's also an allusion to an Old Testament prophecy in in, uh, Daniel chapter 7 of the the coming one day of this this great and mighty ruler appointed by God to receive all power and authority and glory. Jesus, the Son of Man, came and he came eating and drinking and welcoming all manner of people and pointing pointing them forward to the, the coming wedding banquet of the kingdom of heaven. The Son of Man came, and many wrote him off, condemned him, saying, He's a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, a friend of low, associate of low lives. Jesus' assessment and uh, condemnation of his generation is basically saying that they're, they're predisposed against him, against God, such that they'll reject the message, they'll reject the messenger however it comes to them. He says, this generation is childish and obstinate in their rejection of God. I've got to say, this is not peculiar to Jesus' generation. There are always many people who are obstinately predisposed against God, against his messengers. Whatever tune is being played, they find a way to object. So, for example, in in bygone days when Christians were seen as, as good and upright and moral people, well, they were written off as being goody-goody-two-shoes, holier-than-thou sorts. But then increasingly in more recent times, as the, the morality of our world has shifted and and Christians no longer conform to the, the popular so-called morality of the day, well, now they're written off as being evil, hateful bigots. I mean, to use the same logic of verse 18 and 19, we might say when Christians came strictly upholding and living according to the morality of the day, you said you're such a goody, goody, two-shoes loser. And when Christians came refusing to conform to the culturally approved, politically correct norms of the day, you said you're such an evil, hateful bigot. The point is that regardless of the morality or otherwise of the generation, the culture around us, the default attitude, the default predisposition of many people is to reject Jesus, to reject his message and to reject us, his messengers. Which may seem grossly unfair, and it is. But that's the nature of the response of this world to the announcement that the kingdom of God has come near. I mean, for people to write off John the Baptist as demon-possessed, that was wrong and unfair. For people to write off Jesus as a glutton, Drunkard and associate of low lives, that that is so unfair, not to mention blasphemous. Likewise, if we are followers of Jesus and people write us off as loony Christians, well, we shouldn't be surprised. As Jesus said in the the previous chapter, in chapter 10, as he sent out his, his apostles, he said, the student is not, in verse 24, the student is not above the teacher, nor a servant above his master. He says, if the head of the house has been called Beelzebul, a name for, for the evil one, how much more the members of his household? So, I guess by way of application here, we, we shouldn't be surprised, we shouldn't be downcast if, if many people in our generation refuse to believe the gospel of Jesus or condemn us as crazy people. If that's how they treated our master, then we're, we're privileged to be following in our master's footsteps. But perhaps before we, we read ourselves into the shoes of John the Baptist or Jesus, or maybe I should say the sandals of John the Baptist or Jesus, um, perhaps before we, we do that, we ought to make sure that, that we ourselves are not part of the obstinate generation with our, our fingers in our ears screaming, we're not listening. We should make sure that, that we don't go the way of the generation that Jesus condemns. But rather that we we heed his words in the verse before the passage we read today in verse 15, where Jesus says, Whoever has ears, let them hear. Because the the announcement's been made that the kingdom of heaven is near. So friends, make sure that you don't childishly refuse to listen and respond. Because in the end, regardless of of how anyone regards John the Baptist, regardless of how anyone regards Jesus, God will have the final word. And as, as Jesus says, the end of verse 19, but wisdom is proved right by her deeds. John might have been condemned as demon-possessed. Jesus might have been condemned as a gluttonous drunkard. But Jesus and John were, they were characterized by God's wisdom, by the, by the fear of the Lord, and they will be proved right by their deeds by their actions they the, the actions that come from wisdom which i think is actually really helpful if uh, if you're new to all this if you're still trying to work out well you know what's make sense of this and work out what it's about it means that you can look at what well what jesus said but also what he did and you'll see that his actions backed up his words they proved his words Well, Jesus gives this assessment uh, of, his, of this generation and then he sharpens it up. He sharpens it up by warning that it won't end well for those who have ears but don't listen. As Jesus announced the, the coming of the kingdom and, and healed and performed miracles, as, as, people, as Jesus' apostles went out and announced the coming of the kingdom and healed and, and performed miracles, many who heard did not listen. They did not repent. Verse 20, look there with me, verse 20. And Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. Um, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and then the next verse, verse 23, Capernaum. These were all towns in Israel uh, near the Sea of Galilee. I think there's a, there's a map uh, up here on the on the screen. It'll come up. There we are. But if you can see them, they're at the top of um, the Sea of Galilee. And these are part of Israel, God's people, where the message had gone out and accompanied by miraculous signs. And, and as God's people, well, they should have been ready when, when God's appointed king came proclaiming his, kingdoms, his kingdom, they should have repented of their sin. They should have welcomed him, but they didn't. And Jesus warned them that on the coming day of God's judgment that they would, they would not fare well. And he turned up the heat by, by saying, well, Tyre and Sidon, which are um, places beyond Israel, uh, and in verse 23, uh, Sodom, in, this is, these places are in godless Gentile territory. And Jesus says, well, if they'd been given the opportunities that you've been given, they would have repented long ago. Perhaps it's like the person who has um, has had the privileged position of uh, of growing up with Christian parents and going to church and going to youth group and maybe even going to a Christian school and they've had all the pedigree and all the, the privilege. But when they're confronted with the person of Jesus and challenged to respond to him, to acknowledge him as King and Lord. There's no repentance. There's no turning to Jesus, acknowledging him. Instead, there's a a cold holding him at a distance, holding on to the idea that, that we run our lives our own way ourselves. To be in a position of privilege and opportunity and yet ignore Jesus makes you even more culpable. And to continue in that path with the day of judgment coming is just plain foolishness. I was a bit like this once. Uh, I grew up uh, with Christian parents. I grew up going to, to, to church uh, every week, twice every Sunday actually. We went morning and night and went to Sunday school as well. Um starting to sound like a Monty Python sketch, isn't it? Luxury. Luxury. Um, you know, I even did Sunday school exams. We had exams in Sunday school back then. I memorized large chunks of the Bible. But in my, in my teenage years, I, uh, I was confronted with the news that Jesus was king, that I was a sinner, and that I needed to repent because a day of judgment was coming. And despite my privileged position and upbringing, I, just like everyone else, needed to repent and trust Jesus as my Saviour and my King. I'm very thankful for the the ministers, the preachers at at the church where I grew up who taught me, who challenged me with with these, these truths, these same truths we find here in Matthew 11, truths that include the fact that there is a day of judgment coming, that God is God and I am not, and I need to bow my knee before his appointed King. Jesus spoke plainly and he said that if you reject him, if you ignore the announcement of his kingdom, if you refuse to repent, as did the people of Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum, then you will be condemned when you meet God in judgment. Now, that may not be a very popular message to many in our generation, but that's what Jesus plainly taught. And wisdom would mean that we stop and we listen and we respond. Now, of course, the the warning is not the full story and we need to to turn the page and read on into the next passage, which we will look at next week. We need to read the wonderful invitation from Jesus to come to him, not only as king and judge, but to come to him as saviour and friend. And I'm tempted, as you can see, to preach on into next week's passage, but I'll leave that for Ben. The warning is not the full story, but it's part of the story. And we, along with this generation, need to hear the warning and heed the warning. So by way of application, friends, the cloud has lifted. The kingdom has come. Jesus calls on us to respond. And so the first and most important implication of this part of God's word is, have you repented? Have you repented. You may think, well, what does that mean? What is it to repent? Well, to repent is to do a U-turn. It's, it's to change your mind. It's to change the direction of your life. Instead of going against God, away from God, it's to, it's to turn around and to say, I want to follow Jesus as my King. It's to ask Him for forgiveness, knowing that He died for you, that He loves you and wants to forgive you. And it's to submit to him as your king, as your Lord, as your boss, to to, to ask him for help to do that, to live his way. Have you repented? If not, there is nothing more important. Today is a good day to do that. To repent before you face God in judgment. You might face God in judgment today. You might face him in judgment a long time from now. We don't know but make sure you repent. Secondly, if you have repented and received the good news that Jesus is king, which I take is the case for for many of us here, then keep following him as your king. And don't be surprised when the world around you says you're mad or worse. Many in this generation, like in Jesus' generation, will obstinately refuse to listen and will reject Jesus and reject you if you follow him. Don't be surprised by that and make your peace with that. That's reality. thirdly, keep holding out the news, the good news of Jesus to others, because not everyone will reject him. There are those whom God has graciously chosen to be his own. We're going to hear more about that next week. So, Hang on to the news that the cloud has lifted and the king has come and hold out that news to others. Speaking of which, a shameless plug that explaining Christianity starts in 11 days' time. That's a great way to hold out the news to others, to invite someone to come with you and to find out about this king who has come, has come to save them. Have you repented Don't be surprised when the world rejects you and keep holding out the good news. Let's pray. Our Lord God and gracious, loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that Jesus, the Son of Man, the King of your kingdom, has indeed come and has come welcoming sinners like us into your kingdom. Father, if if any here have not yet repented and put their trust in Jesus, please, in your mercy, lead them to do so, to be spared your judgment and to discover the blessing of life in your kingdom. Father, please strengthen us all to live for Jesus as our king and to do that even in the face of opposition from the world around us. And Father, please use us to hold out the good news of your kingdom to others that they may repent and follow Jesus too. Our Father, we thank you for your grace to us in Jesus and we pray in his name. Amen.